Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 24, A Western Man. On February 29, 1840, Simeon Francis was walking one of Springfield's muddy streets when someone began yelling at him. The bespectacled editor of the Sangamo Journal, bearded but with a shaven upper lip, saw a 26-year-old man. He stood five foot four and had stubby legs, broad shoulders, and a huge head. This was Stephen Douglas, the rapidly rising leader of the Illinois Democratic Party. In his hand, he held a stick. Douglas was angry that Francis, a Whig, had called him a thief. After yelling at Francis, Douglas leaped at him. Francis said, quote, Big words fell from his lips. His mighty hand raised the stick. It fell, and we received the blow upon an unoffending apple, which was, as we thought, secure from the chances of war. Abraham Lincoln described what happened next in a letter to his then-legal partner, John Todd Stewart. Quote, Francis caught him by the hair and jammed him back against a market cart, where the matter ended by Francis being pulled away from him. The whole affair was so ludicrous that Francis and everybody else, Douglas accepted, had been laughing about it ever since. Stephen Douglas will always be the also-ran in the Lincoln story. The rival Lincoln finally conquered in the end. But it's likely Lincoln would never have become president without Douglas in Illinois. Lincoln's appeal outside of the sucker state came from a sense that he knew how to handle this brawling bundle of energy better than most. This understanding came from years of defeats at the younger man's hands. If Lincoln and other Whigs laughed at Douglas's physical limitations, they knew not to underestimate his talent for organization or his ability to make the young men of Illinois march in harmony with the Democratic Party. To these men, Douglas was who they saw themselves as and what they dreamed they could be, more than any Whig, even one as rustic as Lincoln, ever could. Douglas was unpretentious. He dressed like them. He drank, brawled, and swore like them. He seemed indifferent to frontier religion and its sour judgments. He was also independent, wealthy, and powerful. These contrasts were at the core of Douglas's political identity. He was many people in a public career that consumed more than half of his short life. Douglas was the loyal Jacksonian, ready to throw punches on behalf of the people. He was the young American who spoke of lofty Republican ideals. And he was the opportunist who shamelessly race-baited and cheerfully traded on inside political information to enrich himself and his colleagues. But if Douglas seemed to be many things, so did the America of his day. Rapidly industrializing and flush with new wealth, the young republic was changing quickly. It had new problems and new priorities the old politics never anticipated. And it had two political parties that, unlike Douglas, were struggling to find their places in this new world.
Douglas's life had more than a few parallels to Lincoln's, particularly in the young man's drive for education and his resentment of the dominant male figure in his family. Douglas was born in Brandon, Vermont, on April 23, 1813, to Stephen Douglas, a local physician, and Sarah Douglas, known as Sally. Like Lincoln, Douglas had an older sister named Sarah. Just two months after Douglas's birth, his father, only 31 years old, died while he was sitting in a chair holding his son. A family story later said that a neighbor's timely intervention prevented the younger Douglas from being dropped into a fireplace. After her husband's death, Sally Douglas took her two children to her brother Edward Fisk's home, where she kept house. Douglas did farm work for his uncle, but he was undersized and weak, and seems to have preferred school. Edward Fisk was unwilling to let Douglas go to school more than three months out of the year. This, combined with an apparent dispute with Sally Douglas over family land, appears to have hurt his relationship with his uncle. Douglas wrote in an 1838 autobiographical sketch that Fisk was, quote, a hard master and unwilling to give me those opportunities of improvement and education which I thought entitled to. When he was at school, Douglas seems to have done well academically, but his small stature may have forced him to learn public speaking as a survival mechanism. As Martin Quitt, his most recent biographer, writes, quote, what Douglas learned in the schoolyard was how to be facile, to handle verbally ruffians whom he could not otherwise fend off. He did not shy away from the world of roughhousing boys. He was scrappy. At 15, Douglas went to learn cabinet making from a relative. He later wrote that he sawed table legs and made washstands and bedsteads. Douglas later claimed that, quote, his happiest days had been spent in the workshop and the bitterest hour of his life was that in which the loss of health compelled him to leave it. It seems unlikely that Douglas enjoyed the heavy and difficult work of cabinet making any more than he enjoyed farm work. His 1838 statement said he left after being asked to do, quote, menial services in the home of his employer, suggesting an early, hard-headed pride. But his health probably did play a factor in his departure, and in any event, it made for a useful story for a politician courting working-class voters. While working as a cabinet maker, Douglas got drawn into the bitter 1828 presidential campaign between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Jackson was Douglas's hero, and he snuck away from the shop to listen to speeches and debates. When pro-Adams partisans put up copies of the Coffin Handbill, accusing Jackson of executing six men during the 1813 Creek War, Douglas helped tear the posters down. This sealed him to a party that both members and opponents called the democracy. Douglas later wrote, quote, From this moment, my politics became fixed, and all subsequent reading, reflection, and observation have but confirmed my early attachment to the cause of democracy. The family moved to Canandaigua, New York, in 1830, when Douglas was 17. He enrolled at a local academy and studied there for two years, getting something like a high school education. Meanwhile, the other members of his family got into a strange marital arrangement with another family. Edward Fisk, Douglas's uncle, married Emily Granger, 
the much younger daughter of a local man named Gehazi Granger. Douglas's sister married Granger's son, and then Sally Douglas, his mother, married Gehazi Granger himself. As Quitt put it, quote, his uncle would have been not only his mother's brother, but also her stepson. Adding to the complications, Quitt says that Edward and Emily may have had their first child out of wedlock. At this point, Douglas began distancing himself from his family, though he never fully cut ties with them. After graduating the academy, Douglas began studying law. At the time, New York State required law students to serve a seven-year apprentice period. Unwilling to wait that long, Douglas wrangled $300 from his stepfather, the equivalent of roughly $8,000 today, and headed west, where it was easier to become a lawyer. During his trip, he came down with an illness, possibly rheumatic fever, which would affect his health for decades to come. This, he wrote, consumed all but $40 of his uncle's bequest. After bouncing around the Northwest, Douglas arrived in Illinois near the end of 1833. He had, he wrote, $1.25 in his pocket. While working briefly as a schoolteacher, which he seems to have viewed as a step above begging, Douglas began practicing law in Jacksonville. In a December 15, 1833 letter to his brother-in-law, Douglas wrote, quote, I have become a Western man, have imbibed Western feelings, principles, and interests, and have selected Illinois, the favorite place of my adoption, without any desire of returning to the land of my fathers, except as a visitor to see my friends and the improvements that may be made from time to time in the country. Douglas's rapid rise through the Illinois political scene began the following March. A lawyer in Jacksonville publicly denounced President Andrew Jackson's war on the Bank of the United States. Douglas, who said, quote, I could not remain silent when the old hero's character, public and private, was traduced, delivered a speech defending Jackson's bank policies. It got instant notice through the Democratic press. From there, Douglas advanced quickly. He got elected as a state's attorney, organized the first Illinois Democratic Party convention in 1835, and won election to the state legislature in 1836. After narrowly losing a congressional race to John Todd Stewart in 1838, Douglas got appointment first as Illinois Secretary of State and then as a justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. Lincoln and other Illinoisans would forever call him Judge Douglas, even after he became a U.S. Senator. As a judge, Douglas proved a relentless circuit rider, at one point hearing more than 400 cases in two months. He had the respect of those at the bar. Justin Butterfield, a Whig and Lincoln's later rival, said, quote, He listens patiently, comprehends the law, and grasps the facts by intuition, then decides calmly, clearly, and quietly. Douglas is the ablest man on the bench in Illinois. In 1843, Douglas won election to the U.S. House of Representatives. Three years later, he went up to the U.S. Senate. What was so appealing about this short New Englander in a state settled chiefly by Southerners? Douglas's personal charisma is hard to understand. 
He was a gifted speaker with a powerful baritone voice. But unlike Lincoln, Douglas had no reputation as a wit or a storyteller. He showed no interest in literature or poetry, and he seems to have had no existence outside politics. Sidney Blumenthal quotes one early observer who said, quote, He had no avocations, he had no private life, no esoteric tastes which invite a prying curiosity. He had no subtle aspects of character and temperament, which sometimes make even commonplace lives dramatic. If this failed to distinguish him, it also helped Douglas blend in with the working men who provided the base of his support. And Douglas worked hard to win their acceptance. In his early career, Douglas wore a blue denim suit, often badly, and spat and chewed tobacco. His habit of sitting in men's laps marked him as someone without airs, and he broadcast humility wherever he went. Quit writes, quote, On the campaign trail, he accepted the hospitality of a family that lived in a 14-foot square log cabin and pleased his host with his expressed appreciation. Douglas coupled this humility with a determination to brawl for his tribe. His stump speeches were sarcastic and angry. Douglas often worked himself into a rage while delivering them. John Quincy Adams, who watched Douglas speak on the floor of the U.S. House in 1844, wrote in his diary that the Illinois representative got so emotional that he yanked off his tie and unbuttoned his shirt as if he were about to start throwing punches. Adams wrote, quote, His face was convulsed, his gesticulation frantic, and he lashed himself into such a heat that if his body had been made combustible matter, it would burst out. And this comes from a man from the judicial bench and passes for an orator. From this geyser of a speaker came a miasma of facts and data that were not always accurate, but were thrown up with such rapidity that opponents found it hard to respond. Carl Schurz, a German revolutionary who later campaigned for Lincoln in the 1858 Senate race, said that with Douglas, it was hard, quote, to surpass his clearness and force of statement when his position was right, or his skill at twisting logic, or in darkening the subject with extraneous, unessential matter when he was wrong, or his defiant tenacity when he was driven to defend himself, or his keen and crafty alertness to turn his defense into attack, so that even when overwhelmed with adverse argument, he could issue into the fray with the air of a conqueror. Douglas also embraced the rabid racism of contemporary Illinois Democrats. He used racial epithets so casually that sympathetic journalists replaced the slurs with the then more proper term, Negro. And a big part of Douglas's image involved drinking. In 1836, at a party hosted by the newly elected Democratic Senator Richard Young, Douglas, thoroughly drunk, climbed up on a table with his ally James Shields. According to John Bryant, a witness to the event, quote, They encircled each other's waists, and to the tune of a rollicking song, pirouetted down the whole length of the table, shouting, singing, and kicking dishes, glasses, and everything left and right, helter-skelter. For this night of entertainment to his constituents, the successful candidate was presented with a bill, in the morning, for supper, wines, liquors, and damages, which amounted to $600, about $16,000 today. 
It's hard to tell from the sources how much of Douglas's angry public persona was due to whiskey and how much wasn't. But as Douglas's power increased, his drinking accelerated. A home he built in Washington in the early 1850s became so famous for the amount of drinking that Douglas and his allies did there that it became known as Mount Julep. This persona appealed to the young men crowding into Illinois, who identified their needs with Douglas. Quitt writes that Douglas, quote, gave the crowd the color of his own mood as he interpreted their thoughts and directed their sensibilities. Historian Michael Burlingame writes, quote, He had a knack for genially convincing everyone he met that he was their good and true friend, interested in what they were interested in, and in caring about what they cared about. They, in turn, felt drawn to him and disposed to support him. Douglas broadly supported the democratic program of small government, except when it came to internal improvements. Unlike Orthodox Democrats, he supported some level of public spending on infrastructure, though he opposed the 1837 plan Lincoln championed in the Illinois General Assembly. But in the 1850s, he did an about-face on the issue, saying the states, and not the federal government, should handle infrastructure. He wrote, quote, Local knowledge does not exist and cannot be found in the topographical core. Yet, Douglas happily dealt in inside information on canals and railroads to enrich himself and his cronies. He used political connections to purchase large tracts of land in and around Chicago, where the Illinois Central Railroad would soon connect. This speculation made Douglas a very wealthy man, and he liked to share his windfall. John Forney, a newspaper editor and clerk in the U.S. House, once wrote about Douglas convincing him to purchase a share in land in what is today Superior, Wisconsin. Forney later wrote, quote, The proceeds of my moiety on the one share of Superior City realized $21,000. For that, I was indebted to Stephen A. Douglas. God bless him. Douglas's intrigues were what a Democratic politician halfway across the country and half a century removed from Douglas would later call honest graft. It presaged the gleeful corruption of the Gilded Age. Whether Douglas was an articulate mainstream antebellum Democrat or a pure opportunist is a matter of dispute. Quid argues that Douglas sought to reconcile history and local concerns with the dictates of the Constitution. He wrote, quote, Douglas earnestly tried to balance his constitutional values with other political concerns. The Constitution was more than rhetorical packaging for him. It pushed him independently of other pressures. Douglas could be articulate about the American experiment. At a time when liberal values were under assault throughout Europe, he became a national spokesman for Young America, which saw territorial expansion as a means of strengthening the world's single republic. His commitment to national unity appears to have been sincere, and he played a major role in shepherding the bills that made up the Compromise of 1850. To followers of John Calhoun, who wanted guarantees for slavery in the territories, Douglas said, quote, The territories belong to the United States as one people, one nation, and are to be disposed of for the common benefit of all, according to the principles of the Constitution. On the other side, 
Burlingame and Blumenthal see Douglas going wherever the money was. His work on the Compromise of 1850 was driven chiefly by his desire to pass a bill organizing the Illinois Central Railroad. Here, he allied with financial interests, particularly bankers who held Texas bonds, who needed the Compromise of 1850 to pass to keep the value of those bonds high. According to Blumenthal, Douglas traded off his support for the Compromise for passage of his Illinois Central Bill. The Texas Bond Lobby, as it was called, returned Douglas's favor. Blumenthal says William Corcoran, a banker and major Texas bondholder, effectively bribed the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, at Douglas's direction, to push the Illinois Central Bill through. On Douglas, Blumenthal wrote that, quote, the root of his thought was always expedience. He added, quote, his career was a series of risk and gambles. He speculated in politics. He speculated with money. He speculated on money in politics, and that speculation made him successful in politics, which in turn made him a fortune. Bringing to bear the financial forces stoking him in his speculations, Douglas worked behind the scenes to grease the way through the previously impassable. Oily and self-serving though these politics were, they seemed more in tune with the national mood of the 1840s than the old issues that divided Whigs and Democrats. The Whigs, in particular, faced an identity crisis. For years, the party argued that the federal government had to create banks and invest in canals and railroads to grow and expand the national economy. The Whigs also said that a high tariff was needed not only to protect nascent industry in the United States, but to ensure that the country's supply of specie, or hard coin, was not spent on imports and placed in the hands of British bankers. The Democrats saw the Whigs program as creating debt that would help the wealthy at the expense of the poor and middle classes. They denounced any idea that the government needed to intervene in the national economy. To the Whigs' chagrin, events in the 1840s appeared to prove the Democrats correct. Famine in Europe that decade created a demand for American wheat, which brought foreign money into the United States and undermined the argument for a high tariff. The discovery of a dime-sized piece of gold in Northern California in 1848 rudely woke Whigs from their dream of a national bank. The gold rush, along with a surge in British investment, suddenly made money available to anyone who wanted it, whether or not there was a national bank. As historian Michael Holt wrote, quote, Since 1849, the economy had been soaring even without Whig's governmental programs, primarily because of a huge increase in the specie supply fueled by California gold strikes and by truly unprecedented British investments in the American economy. Much of the British investment went into railroad stocks and bonds, funding a spectacular construction boom that tripled the amount of track in operation from 6,000 to 18,000 miles between 1849 and 1854. This had multiplier effects. Railroads that needed iron and coal stimulated the growth of those industries, which in turn encouraged immigration to fill those jobs. The new railroads also expanded the markets for farmers, increasing their profits. In such an environment, the Whigs found it hard to argue that the government needed to shepherd the economy. But if Democrats appeared to have won the argument, 
they were starting to look like their opponents. Older Democrats might have been appalled by Douglas's embrace of commercial interests, but by the 1850s, most had gotten over the party's earlier distaste for banks and finance and embraced the money men. As Sean Lentz writes in The Rise of American Democracy, quote, The railroad boom undercut old Jacksonian suspicions of government-supported internal improvements, especially when those improvements promised to aid their home districts. Whigs and Democrats would fight fiercely, especially in state legislatures, to ensure that their backers received the most pork from the barrel. But the denunciations of bank aristocrats or locofoco lunatics, although still heard from time to time to rouse the old party faithful, had become anachronistic rituals. A young Whig named Rutherford B. Hayes wrote in his diary in September 1852, quote, The real grounds of difference upon important political questions no longer correspond with party lines. Politics is no longer the topic of this country. Government no longer has its ancient importance. The people's progress, progress of every sort, no longer depends on the government. Yet politics stay in the heart, even when they disappear from the lips. Neither party wanted to talk about slavery. Both accepted the Compromise of 1850, which opened the door to slavery in the West and, through the Fugitive Slave Act, legalized kidnapping. But the public silence masked the internal strains slavery was placing on both Whigs and Democrats. Many Americans refused to accept the Compromise. Abolitionists sharply criticized the surrender to human bondage and the abduction of men and women based on the color of their skin. White Southern radicals wanted more land for slavery and demanded federal protection of the institution. The Whigs, with their traditional aversion to party organization, fell apart first. Millard Fillmore, the last Whig to occupy the White House, pursued a policy that ordered the North to submit to the Fugitive Slave Law while arresting Southern mercenaries who tried to spark wars in Latin America to expand slavery. Fillmore's policy was not without supporters, but regional pressures weighed on the Whigs. In the South, Whigs got pushed to support the militant spread of slavery advocated by extremists. In the North, Whigs like William Seward, whose home was a stop on the Underground Railroad, saw their constituents growing revulsion to slavery and wanted to confront the great crime. These divisions, combined with poor handling of patronage, sapped Whigs' strength and forced them into increasingly defensive positions. Territorial expansion, which most Democrats supported, gave the party a magnetic north the Whigs lacked. But while stronger as an organization, the Democrats also felt their bonds snapping. In many Whig-leaning states, Democrats managed to grab power through alliances with the Free Soil Party. Northern Democrats, seeing the appeal of the Free Soilers, felt the need to stand up to white Southern elites. Douglas did not. He had no record of supporting anti-slavery measures, and in 1847, Douglas married Martha Martin, the daughter of a North Carolina slaveholder. Martin is a shadowy figure. Her once surviving letter to her husband describes a feeling of sickness when she was pregnant with their second son, and suggests she didn't like Washington. Both of Douglas's children were born on a plantation in North Carolina. And Martin's father gave Douglas the deed to a Mississippi plantation, 
where at least 142 men, women, and children were held in bondage. Douglas claimed that he held the plantation in trust for his sons and had no direct dealings with its operations. Yet, in lawsuits that surfaced decades later, Douglas's sons would claim that he converted money from the plantation for his own use. Slavery paid. Despite the growing strains of the issue within the two parties, elites in 1852 still believed the Compromise of 1850 had settled the slavery issue. Douglas, not yet 40, was viewed as presidential timber. He was a voice of young America, someone who, on paper, could appeal to both sections, especially considering his role in the passage of the Compromise. But he had a major problem, which Douglas could never shake. No one trusted him. He was too slick, too confrontational, too ready to presume intimacy where none existed. And he lashed out at his party's leading figures. Editor George Sanders, who campaigned for Douglas, wrote in 1851 that, quote, the statesmen of a previous generation must get out of the way and proceeded to attack prominent Democrats. William Marcy, a former Secretary of War and key New York State Democratic leader, was, quote, spavined, windblown, strained, ring-boned. Sanders called 1848 presidential nominee Lewis Cass, quote, a human contradiction, and former Secretary of State James Buchanan, quote, an old fogey. This thoroughly offended members of the party. Representative Andrew Johnson of Tennessee called Douglas and his supporters, quote, miserable banditti, much fitter to occupy cells in the penitentiary than places of state. Douglas's raw, brawling style of politics, which played so well in frontier Illinois, served him poorly in the more elevated areas of Washington. Schurz recalled that after Douglas delivered an especially loud speech in the Senate, he jumped into the lap of one of his colleagues, quote, talking and laughing for 10 or 15 minutes with his arm around the neck of his friend, who seemed to be painfully embarrassed, but could or would not shake him off. Douglas's confrontational debating struck many Washingtonians as better suited to a tavern than a legislative body. Some viewed him as a buffoon. Southern Democrats, increasingly key to the party's presidential nominations, thought that Douglas was a parvenu or, at best, a useful tool. At the 1852 presidential convention, Douglas could do nothing more than force a deadlock with Cass and Buchanan, which opened the door for Southerners to put forth Franklin Pierce, a son of privilege from New Hampshire who was perfectly amenable to what they wanted. Douglas accepted the results and campaigned for Pierce and the ticket while trying to repair bridges with the Democrats he had attacked. Following Cass at a speech in New York, Douglas said Cass could, quote, not be an old fogey even should he live a thousand years. But these peacemaking efforts did Douglas little good. When President Pierce began doling out patronage, his Southern-dominated cabinet locked Douglas out of the spoils. Douglas suffered a major blow in January 1853. His wife Martha gave birth to a daughter, but she suffered complications and died on January 19th, just 28 years old. Douglas's daughter died a month later. A cousin said the exuberant Douglas was, quote, more depressed in feeling than I ever saw him before. 
unable to get back to work, Douglas embarked on a tour of Europe that spring, presenting himself as a proud and unbending exemplar of American democracy. He snubbed Queen Victoria of Great Britain rather than wear a diplomatic attire to meet her, and he skipped a meeting with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Invited to a review of Russian troops in St. Petersburg, Douglas was saved at the last minute from a wild horse by the Tsar himself. When Douglas returned from the trip, he found himself plunged into a fight over the future of slavery and his own ambitions for Chicago to become the eastern terminus of a transcontinental railroad. Douglas held the chair of the influential Senate Committee on Territories, but he had a precarious hold on it. Canny Southerners, sensing Douglas's desires and vulnerability, would soon lead him to introduce a bill that would destroy his party and the country. Next time, we'll discuss the Kansas-Nebraska Act, one of the most consequential laws in American history. We'll also talk about how it destroyed old party boundaries and how Lincoln thrust himself into the fight against it. Thank you.